When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's funny that you moved from Austin to LA because it feels like a lot of people are doing it the other way around now. I, 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 several of my friends and I migrated from Austin to here. I think, like, honestly, more in terms of, like, my good friends in Austin, I think at least half of them moved out here within the same couple of years I did. I think it was kind of a deal of, because of the migration to Austin, much of what we loved about living in Austin, cheaper rent, uh, slower pace of life, good traffic, all these things, just old, old familiar Austin places. I went to college there. I moved there in the early 90s. Was just kind of getting lost, as, as tends to happen with you know, quote unquote progress and gentrification. So with it, just kind of started seeming like if we're going to already be paying this kind of rent and putting up with this kind of most of my friends I'm speaking of are also in the film film world. So I think we're going to put up with all this. We may as well go live where the weather's nicer and where the film industry is. <laughs> I think that was a lot. Of, I think that was kind of a lot of the mentality do you find it easier is that a little bit easier for work and stuff and just you know connecting with people I mean, certainly for tv work yeah I, I, case in point i had not had any tv work and i moved out here and i immediately started working on barry and now in that time i've had five either pilots or series and that from the last four years when I previously had zero so yes i think for television work and since that's where so much is going in these days so many series i think 15 years ago would have been films and now they're series. so it, 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 the timing lined up well for me in terms of work it, that wasn't even really my main reason for moving here honestly but it's certainly been good it's, it's interesting that idea you're talking about there you know worth maybe 15 years ago a lot of these series would have been films and now they're being developed into like 10 part episodic narratives in the way that you can kind of explore the characters and all these different things in a slightly, a bit more detail and just with a little bit more space. Is that a similar thing for you composing? 
does it allow you to kind of explore things in a little bit more detail when you're given 10 episodes instead of a two-hour runtime? Yeah, I think in terms of, I think there's been times where really take the long game with developing like a theme and like thinking of it in terms of planting the seeds early on in the season. And then when it comes to fruition, whatever story arc, then yeah, fully, fully exploring all the sonic possibilities of it. But, um, not as much as you might think all the same. I think they end up using a lot of the same, you know, so a lot, I think every series I've worked on by the time you're in the seventh, eighth, ninth episode, say a 10 episode season, a lot of, they do want to have that, you know, the through line with the other episodes, of course, um, ostensibly assuming some people are still watching week to week when you're binging, it's different, but when it is, uh, you know, separated 10 episodes, separated by a week, you want to have that, sense of familiarity and i think it helps like subconsciously like bring you back into that world to hear some of the same music that you've already been hearing that's my kind of theory on it so end up having a lot of the same music uh, a lot of music being reused and i'll do what i can i'll, I'll i always like to make some changes here and there uh, tailor it to picture of course but for the most part um yeah it's not say a two hour film and then there's an eight hour series, eight hours of new music. Versus it's, it's not that much more music in terms of writing wise. Uh, obviously there's more time to picture them, but I think there's the same amount of themes and whatnot. Is that how you start them? Will you develop the themes before you do anything else? Will you kind of get them pinned down? Yeah, I really don't. I don't find that my process really changes that much in terms of getting started and how I'm, approaching it versus film um it's the same kind of thing watch the watch cuts of the first couple of episodes hopefully but sometimes it's just the first and read the scripts and talk to the showrunners in this case or directors and um about sonic palette that we're thinking and then i like to i personally like to get going on those ideas before i even have picture if possible just to you know maybe you can send me some Maybe I'll send you a few scenes here and there or a super rough cut, but I like to kind of hit the ground running by the time we're actually working on a cut and have already, like the last show I did, Minds MC. Like for that one, I just sent him, sent Elgin James, a lot of music that was like, is this the world that we want to live? Is this the right emotion? Is this the right sonic palette? Um, maybe some of these can end up being themes, maybe not. And I think of, I sent him like six things in. I think one of them became a team and the rest didn't, but he liked them all. And none of those ended up being, once I started working on the picture, none of them seemed right as actual themes, but it was still a really good basis knowing that he felt it was the right world in terms of the feeling and the, the instrumental palette that we developed. So it's always a different thing, but I do like to, hit, again, hit the ground running once I get started and know that what, what musical world we're living in. I find that when you try to develop themes ahead of time, if, sometimes you get lucky. Um, Midnight Special, I wrote a piece of music after just reading the script, and that became the main theme that's repeated throughout. And Jeff had it in there. Jeff Nichols, the director, Julie Monroe, the editor, had it in the cut from the very beginning. So sometimes you can kind of strike gold. Um, but more often than not, it's all sort of academic until you're actually working with pictures in terms of music that's actually going to work to 
So for Midnight Special, had you seen any footage from that or was that theme purely composed just off reading the script and conversations? Yeah, uh, it was. And that was after, so I guess that was my third movie with Jeff. And um, I think by that time, we kind of really understood his vision and his aesthetic and what he was gravitated towards. And we talked so much. Um, we both lived in Austin. So just before he got us the great thing about working with your friends and knowing about the project well beforehand. Like I read that script probably a couple of years before he made it. And just getting, you know, going up to lunch with Jeff and just talking about his scripts and talking about his ideas for it. So by the time that came, I don't think it was that much of a surprise considering that we just worked on these two other films together and that we had talked so much about this midnight special that I started making music and that particular thing, I was like, oh, this feels right. Um, after a few tries of other things. And then sure enough, I went to visit set when they were shooting and he showed me that he put it up to the dailies. He's like, I think this is really good. And then once you found that main theme, what does that kind of teach you about, you know, we're speaking about like the soundscape and the world of the film. What do you learn about that from creating that theme and how does that inform everything that kind of comes following? Like in, this, in that particular case, it was this kind of slow synth pulse. It was really felt like there's a lot of driving in that movie. It just felt really, it, it gave it the momentum that it needed, but also tension and foreboding sense that was going throughout. And um, so I think it establishes a few specific motifs like that that was, was going to have a lot of this just kind of pulsing bass synth notes, but also the sense of space in there. Um, didn't the mix of uh, orchestration with this kind of heavy mode bass synth. Uh, he always wanted it bassier and bassier. Like it was kind of, in that, and I think that was established in that first thing. That was was a pretty heavy, heavy, heavy bass tone to, to it. So yeah, I think it established a lot. I mean, I mean we kind of really took it around with it. That um, that sense of space you were talking about there was that to try and reflect the way the film is kind of structured. Because you know, there's a lot of periods in that where there's no talking, and when there is dialogue, it's very practical and realist. I think that was um, what, kind of what I'm talking about in terms of learning what Jeff gravitated towards. I think just from mud and take shelter, just continuing to tear things down for him. Just learned that that was what worked. The, the fact that all of his movies, there's not a lot of talking. He's such a visual storyteller. And the music in those kind of reflected that. Like it plays a big part because it's. It's it's in lieu. Sometimes the music in his films, I feel like, is expressing the emotions that these kind of tight-lipped characters aren't. But it still has to kind of reflect uh, stoicism, sort of, of these characters and, these, and the way that Jeff is telling his story uh, in this kind of careful, very deliberate manner. So I think that's one of those cases, and that's why with Midnight Special and even more, I'm loving the next movie. It just kind of clicked into place because I was didn't have to figure out what he meant when he met Sparse. Like we had a few experiences where I was really trying to get it, and when it finally came, just like one French horn line, like playing one note for eight seconds, we're like, "That's it. That's the that's, the, that's what we we need here." After I tried, like he said, "Horn." I'm just a scene in mud. I tried so many things, like was like what I thought it was like a minimal brass part. And it literally just wanted the sound of a horn. That was a huge eye-opening thing of working with them. 
Do does the way you communicate with him change over the course of working on those four movies together? Yeah, it just gets easier because I know, like I, I guess, I just know what he means. Um, I think it's like that with everybody with, that you've worked with long enough. It's the same with working on Barry at the beginning um, with Bill Hader. The first six weeks, we had a lot of time to work on the pilot, and just not, not. That was Bill's first time directing and his first time uh, directing a composer and just establishing that uh, communication can be tough. The first six weeks on barriers were back and forth and tr- like trying something. I was like, no, nah, that's too far this way. That's too far that way. And then once you find it, you're like, okay, we have some, we have some, it's, it, you find that common ground and then you just try to keep exploring that. Um, and then by the second season, I know what he's gravitating towards. So with Jeff, by loving Julia, it was the same thing I think with the director, and that's why I think the why I think the, a lot of the directors that have a signature style and vision have their team that they work with all the time because to have that shorthand with everyone just makes everything work so much smoother. Um, when everyone is gearing towards the same vision, everyone understands. The, if it's a writer director, especially his his project, his or her project that they are seeing through. Um, on a lens and so julie monroe just editor and i would talk about during loving like this is the feels like it's never been this smooth like everything we did jeff jeff is very exacting and mud and that special there was just so many so many uh versions both on her end of edit scenes custom scenes and on my end of like out some some of those more like intense scenes i don't know how many versions of Cues I did. I feel like there would be three weeks straight of just working on the same piece of music. And I love it. Julie and I just kept waiting for it to get that way. We're like, I think we've, I think we're all finally like rolling on the same page because Jeff was always, she just had very, very little few notes. Maybe because you went so quick from Midnight Shelter to Loving as well. Because I mean, what was it like 10 months, a year or something between them in terms of release date? I don't know what it was Honestly, like. Honestly, it. it was longer than it seemed. It was uh, Midnight Special, Warner Brothers put out way after we were done with it. And I don't remember the reason why. <laughs> they were going to do it in the fall. And then I think it was just what it was going to be up against. I think it was just their, their slate. And so they put it out six months after, or maybe even more, seven or eight months after their original planning on it. I worked on another couple of films in between those two. What did you do in between? Uh, our Brand is Crisis. It was a David Gordon Green movie. That was the last movie I worked on with David, one of our men. And um, no, I guess it was just that. I was thinking Brigsby Bear, but that was after month. Do you do you have to work one project at a time, or can you kind of have a few plates spinning at the one? I like to. I, I most other composers I know double up a lot or triple up a lot more than I do. Um, I really don't like to, if I'm, unless it's two two projects that I really want to do. Then I certainly will. I'm, I've done it before. I just like living in this, living in the living at one space. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a matter of. I don't think the quality where I've done it is lacking, but my personal stress level and enjoyment of the process certainly is, is sacrificed. So that's why. Um, if it's, if it, I will never turn something down because I don't want to be doing something. I mean, that's not. A, that's not for me a good enough reason not to do a project I really want to do. But 
I also am fairly picky, so it doesn't usually happen that I have things. But there's a lot of overlap for certain. Finishing something and starting something else. When you're working on a university center, you kind of like to leaven the world of it a little bit. How does that function for something like the Heaven's Gate documentary when maybe the subject matter on the one hand is real and on the other hand is a little bit depressing and unpleasant? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Heaven's Gate, that, that being during like COVID and everyone like right in the, right in the middle of the pandemic and then everyone's <laughs> locked in anyway. Um, that was a different time than most. Like usually it would be different way <laughs> that. But I just think everyone already being in this weird headspace. Yeah. It didn't really matter. Um but I do know this film the report that I did about um, the the CIA's torture report. Yeah, enhanced interrogation quote unquote um program after nine eleven. Uh that was rough and I was in the middle of watching something. I'm trying to remember what I was in the middle of some depressing series <laughs> and also and reading like some kind of intense stuff and once i started working on the report i'd be like spending all day yeah dealing with torture and then like state sanctioned torture and uh then getting home like continuing whatever it was i was watching and reading like something's gotta stop i don't think i can, <laughs> i think i've got to give myself a break on my off time um and so I was just like watching 30 Rock and King of the Hill when I got home. <laughs> you just have to kind of fill your time away from it with things that are more lighthearted than my only way I know to make it work. Just bring you back to baseline. Yes, exactly. My, my friend, I play Tweel directed um, the Heaven's Gate doc. And he's told me that before, like when they were working on some really heavy documentaries, like, like people would probably find it odd to know watching this doc that we were like, Watching East Bama down at lunch every day <laughs> in between, like editing this very sad stuff. You just gotta kind of find your find your levity where you can get it. How long? How long was the process working on that? That was good. That was uh, not that. We, that was a case of actually making. There was not a lot of like music that was reused. That was basically four hours of music that was all pretty much in the uh, original compositions. Over three months, so that was that was real busy, for sure. Wow, that's a long period to be immersed in that. Too. It was, <laughs> that's true. but I mean, it's really interesting though. There's so many, you know, true crime series, rocky series on that I think would be tougher. Um, cause this one's so it. Yeah, there's there's a super sad parts of obviously I mean, the whole story is extremely sad. Is mass murder or mass suicide? But um. But it's something different about that that I feel like that would be working you know, like a serial killer. Thing, you know what I mean? Like a fantastical and the music I was getting to make for also. I was getting to make like a lot of kind of fantastical sort of stuff, um, and not just not just darkness. So it wasn't. I don't look back on that and think, "Oh, that was you." It seems like I should, but I don't. <laughs> I just really loved working with Clay and I loved the music that I was getting to make for it. And I've I've liked Clay's uh, work so much. Uh, I didn't, I I kind of only knew the surface level facts about it, honestly. Um, So most of it was all new to me. So I guess not. Were you familiar with um, the report, the story of that before you started working on it? Yes. Certainly. And that was a 
think the most interesting thing about working on the report in terms of, yeah, I kind of knew all most of those main facts, but that was in, I was working on that at the end of 2018. And so when the, FBI and the CIA are suddenly kind of really the, being treated as the good guys going against because Trump was so anti deep state and they, you know, Mueller, yeah, and the CIA were being seen as like these uh, up, up, American institutions that are upholding our democracy and standards. And it's like, I'm, yeah, everyone needs a reminder what the FBI and CIA have actually. Also done quite just <laughs> and so Mueller is actually the name dropped in the report. And so I was I, I thought that was an important aspect of that movie coming out when it did to kind of keep keep everyone keep their eye on the prize and know what very recent history is with the state and stuff. It's so easy to go the other way. You kinda of, you get you see that in the film actually, I think there's a clip in it where they see like the trailer for Zero Dark Thirty or something on in the background. Yeah, that was that was good. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was that was cool. Was it quite? I mean, you know, we're saying that it's really important. This film is kind of bringing attention to it. Was it quite widely covered in like American news and stuff at the time? The, the torture report. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, yeah, certainly, definitely. Um, especially once all like the pictures came out from Abu Ghraib. But you know, but I think we have a short memory, and yeah. I think. Especially with Trump, just like almost erased like everyone's memory of everything before Trump. And that's why I thought this was, and I even saw a review of it, and I couldn't believe it. it was like, is this really important right now while we're dealing with? It's like, well, that's a horribly racist setting. Is it really important that we tortured hundreds and hundreds of brown people that were, yeah, and it was a state sanction? Yeah, I don't know. People really just lose perspective quickly when you're when you're writing music for a film like that are you writing it from like a, a third person perspective looking at this as an objective thing or are you trying to write the score from the the perspective of a certain character it's always dependent um jeff's movies jeff nichols movies i feel like they're so character centric um with the lead characters always his movie you know, all different genres all different types but the main through line is always this kind of quieter lead character who's going through usually a something involving his family being in danger in some way because of these kind of strong silent types the music has to kind of be their emotional gauge um and the themes kind of have to reflect that because their dialogue is not doing it and so in that case, yes, it's very much the music is kind of subjective to the, the, this main character and their experience. Um, and then the report certainly did some of that with uh, uh, Adam Driver's character, uh, with Daniel, um, Dan, what's his, I'm forgetting his last name, but with Dan's, uh, Dan's experience, like, uh, I think the score, and yes, the score in the report was really about, well, obviously outside of obvious things is doing, but in terms of the art, the narrative arc of the score, going through Dan's experience from the innocence and, uh, you know, he opens up the film to say he, after 9-11, he decided to change his deal and go work for the government. Like he was moved by patriotism. So the, the beginning of that score and these 
initial themes have a real like earnest uh wanted it to feel like that it's kind of earnest earnest innocent like patriotism feel to this kind of like regal brass and reflecting that and then it gets deteriorated throughout the score so it was pretty like explicitly as these these couple of themes getting pretty explicitly degraded like i was using the sherman filter bank i got for it it's a piece of equipment that kind of just adds very a very distinct sort of analog distortion to, to sounds and bringing that in and by the end it's sort of like world weary the theme has become um, like yes yeah, you know dan did his job and it's incredible how much he put on the line to, as a you know fairly low low level government employee to to shine this much light on this but um in doing so his illusions of, of what he thought he was getting into this work for were shattered and the music needed to reflect that even despite this you know fact that he succeeded in what he was trying to do so long way of saying it differs from movie to movie I think sometimes thinking of like David Green's movies, like in Joe and uh, that's another like real character piece, kind of like Jeff's movies where it's reflecting kind of Nicholas Cage's mindset, his character of Joe. And then obviously you're doing a documentary and it's going to be a completely different thing. It's not going to be near subjective to the character usually. What you were saying there as well, but that through line that you had for the report where you know, though you have the idea of the kind of score breaking down and moving away from the more patriotic sounds. Is that something, that idea, is that you very much have that from the offset and you kind of use that to navigate your way through it? Or at what point does it start to take hold? Yeah, the report was a unique experience because um, they had had another composer on it and I was brought in, I guess they were midway through, were unable to continue. And so they had already really thought through a lot of, I think, gone through a lot of those first aspects of the score in terms of thinking what it needed. Like, because that is the kind of thing that you would often kind of maybe start coming up with that idea midway through. So I got like a blueprint of everything. It was great. It was because we had very little time because I was coming in pretty late in the game. So just a blueprint of like, this theme does, we need to have this theme for, and they had a collection of all the scenes that would be like this theme. And I guess maybe a lot of composers would like maybe they would feel hemmed in by that, but I loved it. I loved having it all spelled out and I just get to make music and not have to figure out all the parts that's just all right there, especially with maybe if there was an end in more time, I would have wanted to have more of a part in that, that part of the collaboration. But in this, in this case, it really just made it easy to hit the ground running. So that was very specific. The horns was specific somehow degrade them was specific and it, it was just about figuring out how to do that and do it in a unique way and i called i, I talked to a friend who used the sherman filter bait for his records and felt like that might be the right way it's interesting to think about that idea you know what you're saying there about how it's kind of mapped out in that you know that how it's going to degrade and you know this theme's going to come up in these various scenes would you map that out yourself working on something, say like we're talking about, you know, Midnight Special with where the main theme's going to come in and where the drones are going to come in? Is that something you map out pretty early on? Think about Midnight Special. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is editing and putting in, like, themes and that. I mean, we'll spot the movie, but it's rare that we say this is, more often than not, don't know immediately like this is where the main thing comes back in i think it's after i've written i 
few different themes. I have the tension theme, have the process theme, have a couple of character themes, and then yeah, the main theme. And then they'll just start placing it on their own. And then what and it'll, you know, quite often it's like this doesn't work here, but some version of this theme could or this is working pretty well. Let's do a different let's change some instrumentation, tailor the picture. So it's not usually my my choice though. Yeah, but certainly sometimes, especially on TV where I feel like the pace is so much quicker, I often end up doing that on my own. That is true. I way more than I do in film because everyone's kind of having the the showrunners having to wear so many different hats all the time. But I do take a little bit more of I feel like, especially the editor also takes a lot more. Um, I, I work with the editor a lot more in that regard than I do in film. What about? Um you know, say something like Take Shelter, where a lot of the film is very short, kind of one to two minute, almost musical vignettes. But then at the end, when you're in the shelter itself, you have that like, I think it spans up the whole scene. It's like seven or eight minutes or something that you have a masterpiece of music. Did you know from the off that that was going to be required? You're going to, most of it's going to be short and then you're going to have that one grander piece? Yeah, that was a really, that was a very deliberate thing that was, totally different way of working than I'm used to doing. We're, and Jeff was really smart about how he had envisioned that, where the music really reflected Michael Shannon's character's experience to where everything is just so... He's he's suppressing so much the whole movie, and it's, and it's just coming out through his nightmares, and then he's just not talking about to anybody, and so the music had, yeah, just reflecting... This growing anxiety under him that apparently explodes. Obviously, in the scene that wasn't scored in the town when they're having like the, the Lions Club or whatever. Um, the dinner where he explodes and then it goes down into the basement, into the cellar. And then that, that's like the payoff of that theme. It d- gets to do the full because he is finally showing showing completely what he's going through to his family. He's finally it has consumed him. And so the music finally gets to play out what's been going on in his head all that time. So it was interesting. That was the first piece of music. That was the first piece of music I made for the movie. It's a long, not near, I mean, the very much uh, rough, rough, rough blueprint version of that. We had to end up, you know, working on it for who knows how long. At the end, once that scene was actually edited. But wrote the long version that becomes that right at the beginning to base the little vignettes on, if that makes sense. So do the big part first. And which I think is a more like standard traditional way of working for composers. I just usually know. I know like some, I know a lot of composers will do like a big suite right from the get go with all the different themes in it. And I think those are probably composers from a, not probably, they are from a more of a music school theory background um we're used to writing in big classical orchestral suites and i don't come from the rock world so that's very much a new thing for me to do that but um sort of a version of that so wrote the and then there was another big piece obviously at the end of take shelter at the at the beach and then that one was not written at the beginning in fact we got to the very end and still didn't have anything for that and it was like a week and a half until next and jeff was like we're really like how the main things working there and i was just so determined i was like i can't we just heard that i just don't think we can do it all over again like we just and so that was a 
So that movie was the, the process of scoring that movie was bookended by two big pieces of music with yeah, all the little kind of vignettes and drony stuff. I mean that piece at the end as well is kinda of, it has to reflect something completely different because the whole film he's been doubted and finally he's proved right. It's the complete flip of exactly. it we've been hearing so yeah. far. That, that, and that ending is so I see so many I've heard so many different takes on it, which is funny because I always I didn't think it would be that picked apart and you have such different opinions on what's happening there. But um yeah, because of that, I felt like there's no way we could just run that same piece of music again. <laughs> so I was really happy with what I came up with. But it was it was certainly under the gun. I, that was the that was probably my eighth or ninth try, what you hear in there. It possibly leads into the idea that it's like your 10th try and you're kind of starting to get a little bit worn down. You maybe hear that a little bit. That's a good point, maybe so. Yeah, there's really not much time left. It was, and I was pretty green still. That was my first score I'd ever done with or- orchestration at all. And so Knowing I had it, like, orchestration is new to me and I'm having to do it with a week and a half left. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> did you uh did you not get like the same musicians in to play all the different parts for that as well? Like instead of getting a full orchestra, they just came in and kind of did Yes, yeah, so we had such a low budget. I mean the entire music budget for my my pay and the budget was like I think fifteen thousand dollars. So so small. So yeah, I went to my friend's studio in Austin where I recorded my where I mixed my Band record and yep, just I kind of tortured four different <laughs> string players by having them play just their same parts like eight times in a row and then yeah <laughs> faked faked an orchestra. I'd never done it before. People told me it worked, so I trusted. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned a few moments ago that you kind of come from like a rock background as opposed to music school. I mean, when you were growing up, did you want to be in a band? Did you want to be a composer? Did you just want to make music? Which kind of was it? I mean, it would have never even occurred to me to make music, even though I loved, I lo- I, w- I would say I almost loved music and movies equally, with music slightly winning out, but um, it still would have never occurred to me to do music. But, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and 90s where I think that was still just like, seemed like a world of, like, I wasn't interested in, yeah, I was just interested in rock music and, and, and and they had like movie film music moved me, but I the idea of, at that point film music was classical music. I just didn't think that was that wasn't even my interest. So it would have never occurred to me. At the, you know, film music certainly changed a lot, but um, it would have never occurred to me to even think about doing film music if David I had not grown up with David Gordon Green and he had me do student films and then. Had me and my friend Michael Leonard and George Washington. This is all kind of just out of necessity for him. <laughs> I'm not having any money, so getting whoever will do it. Yeah, so certainly circumstances led me to this. And uh, fortuitously, it's, I realized I enjoyed it just as much, if not more, than making my own music. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, both your compositional work and your work as. I'm going to, is it Ola Podrida? How do you pronounce it? Yeah, that's it. Ola Podrida. The name of your band, Ola Podrida, means it's like a Spanish stew, you know, where you just throw a bunch of different random ingredients and in, a lot of different stuff and you kind of let it simmer for a few hours. Could that ever be like a reflection of your compositional process? With what we were saying earlier about finding the soundscape, do you establish the elements you want to use and then kind of just see what happens? Yeah, sometimes my favorite way of making music is. I used to get psyched out by the fact that I'd be like, you know, the beginning of stages of something and add a 
you kind of hear hear in your head how this sh- should sound with add this guitar part, add the string part, and then it's just you got a few parts, and I was like, "This is not sounding how I thought it would sound." It would psych me out. I'd be like, "This is how I off the scrap it and start over, just get down with that." And now it's just kind of head down, just keep doing it, just keep recording parts, whatever is in there, mess with it once. Yeah, see what sticks once you're done. Like, don't even think about the fact this isn't sounding how you wanted it to sound. It'll sound like something else. Then add some more parts, see what happens. So yes, very. And I love the mixing process. To me. I think about the way that David Gordon Green, growing up with him, the way that he edits his movies, especially like some of those earlier ones, like All the Real Girls in George Washington, where he would just film a lot, start throwing out lines for the actors. They would do the script and they improv, and then they would just kind of come up with some sort of maybe take the scene somewhere else. And he wouldn't think about it until he was in the edit and then just kind of really placed the movie together in the edit. And All the Real Girls ended up being. Half the movie, it was what they shot on picture. It starts in what was supposed to be the middle of the movie. That just, we're very young. I was still 20, only 26 at the time. That just blew my mind that he could do that and that it could still be. Yeah. And so that inspired me a lot just in terms of thinking about my process and just like, well, figure it out once you're in there, once you have everything recorded. So I do love that aspect. Surprise yourself and just like mute things repeat things just get in there in the edit and think this is just the um or in the mix because it's like yeah just get think of this is just the foundation and the blueprint for what this could be and start adding effects and just single out a little piece i'll do like you know record five just improv like five different tracks just making noise with an evo on the guitar and pull a few things out from that that just kind of become like the main kind of repeating looping drone or something that runs throughout a, I think that someone takes shelter kind of in some of the drone or stuff is like that so I, I do like that aspect of kind of unplanned surprising yourself it's kind of you know what's, what's the where are the cards that Brian that you said yeah. I was that's literally just what I was thinking of yeah the Oh shit, I know what you mean. The card he's got and I'll just say, like delete something or destroy everything. Yeah. Um, I'll remember it once we're off. Um, but yeah, I love that. It's, a, it's also like the William Burroughs. He got that from the William Burroughs cut up method too. I just think it's such a, a fun way of. It's like takes you back to like when you first started making things. It's a good way to kind of always retain that initial sense of like discovery when you're making something yeah like i mean what you were saying that you didn't come into this with the intention of being a composer it's about trying to recapture that isn't it and just kind of tear up the rules a little bit and replicate that sense of discovery yeah and i think for me it's like so it's important it's important to not lose that and get burnt out and to just think of stuff as like a job and so it keeps me pretty choosy about the you know you can't take that not every job is that really, not every project is that um, going to work. <laughs> it's just some things are a lot more standard and don't have, don't, uh, aren't going to work with that level of looseness, <laughs> I guess is the best thing to say. So, um, yeah, but I have discovered that it's always keeping that, some sense of that, no matter, I'm not saying every, every scene by any means, but always knowing that if you start getting stuck, you can start doing that. Yeah, just start tearing stuff up. Yep. <laughs> there is something really liberating about it's uh, you know just destroying stuff in the creative process yeah i agree that what was that's what was kind of fun about the report knowing like we're taking these pretty pretty themes and we're just gonna 
make them all whacked out. <laughs> what uh, I think you said a few moments back that you almost love film and music equally. Music maybe edges it out a little bit. Are are you quite a visual thinker? Do you think you know when you think about things creatively and it comes to music? Do you like a pr- apply? a visual approach to it in any way? Well, when I'm writing songs, I certainly do. Um, when I'm writing my own songs, I don't think I'm like a natural lyricist. And I didn't really, I always kind of came last as a necessary thing that I wasn't necessarily excited about. And I started enjoying doing it more when I would kind of just start picturing more of the scene when I was, the music was kind of conjuring for me. Um, and letting that kind of dictate the lyrics. So yeah, even though I don't think of myself as a visual person, I'm not. I can't do any kind of visual art to save my life. Yeah, to a degree, I would say so. I mean, when we think you imagine, you know, they're lyrically, the lyrics in your music almost serve the same. They almost take on the same role as the images in the film, where you kind of have that very visual spine to it, and you kind of build the soundscape around it. Yeah, and that is, I do. I weirdly think my film scoring helped my lyrics more than it more than or uh, i stepped in my lyrics more than did my musically which is not me but because of that i think i started thinking of it in that way like you, you just said. how would you have written when you were a teenager would you have written in the same way where it's very, very visual or would your songwriting have been slightly different no that's why i didn't like writing i kind of thought i don't know i don't know why i just thought like the only i was so stuck in like uh autobiographical like confessional kind of singer-songwriter lyricism. So it's like the lyrics had to be true to my life or whatever experience I'm writing about. And it felt so limiting. And even though I listened to so much music that wasn't like that, I don't know why I thought I had to... I was just stuck in that. Um, And that's why I didn't put out a record until I was 30. I I was always not really happy with enough with my lyrics and i really want to show it more people to form a band and play in front of people. Yeah, it was only after I kind of discovered this... (laughs) <laughs> which should not have been a revelation, but it was. I didn't have to write about my own life. That I, could, I felt free. Can you still find an outlet for that side of things creatively? I think music just does that creatively. I think that's what I realized. Like the, I'm expressing myself. I'm expressing my feelings through music. <laughs> I don't need to have words that do it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost, it's like... Um, you know, we've spoken about Midnight Special quite a bit. The, it's the bit in that film, you know, when Adam Driver is interviewing the cult members, when they're speaking about the experience they had with the kid that they can't describe it, they can just feel it. Yeah. I just think it's any creation is self-expression, even if it's extremely heady uh, cerebral, then there's some more intellectual self-expression than anything you're doing. So that's... Yeah, exactly. If you're guiding, for me, not having gone to music school, for me, the creative process is more just intuitive thing, where it's like, this feels right, this feels, you just learn how to have the language for expressing what I, it, it rings true to the feeling that, the, not even what I'm trying to conjure, it's like, I have my first few pieces, and I'm going along writing something, and it starts feeling a certain way to me. And then it becomes just intuitive about like, yes, this, this, whatever I just added to this, that seems to engage that feeling more <laughs> or, or be a counterpart that's even more interesting or complex, whatever, either way. Finding that feeling is almost like slipping into the groove when you're jamming then. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty ADD and have a hard time focusing a lot of the time on anything 
depending on what's going on in my life. But that's what's always kind of magical about music because time just slips away when I'm making because you know, it's not a matter of focusing. It's just, yeah, like you say, you just get in the groove and it just starts going on its own. I'm not really having to think about it. Um, you're engaging the intellect, but I'm not having to force myself to focus. It's the only time I don't have to like continuously tell myself to focus. <laughs> it's just happening. Was that what drew you to music in the first place? I don't know. I think I just always like songs a lot. I just got I attached a lot of meaning to songs from a very young age. So I just kind of wanted to do that. Because I grew up in David Gordon Green, so it's interesting. I feel like we both... I don't know if my love of film would have continued to be explored and manifested as it was if I hadn't been as friends with him. I don't know if the same with him with music. Like, we kind of kept each other really in the loop. Like, I wouldn't have known. I knew about, like, they discovered, like, 70s, you know, 70s, like, film, like, Baldwin and Terrence Malick and all those, all those guys. And when we were in college, and I don't know how long it would have ever taken me to start exploring all that um, if he hadn't been my friend. And then same deal with me and getting into more like obscure indie music. And so I think, um, I guess that's kind of not really answered your question, but I'll go back to what, yeah, saying drew me to music or in the first place, I think music and movies. I mean, that was what David and I got to be kind of bonded on in the first place when we were like, very small, like in elementary school, it was movies. Like we were the only two people we knew who like really wanted to talk about movies all the time. <laughs> and then for me, music just kind of yeah, I was the same with music, and that just kind of sort of took over. When you, I don't know when you've been friends for that long, you obviously have such a kind of strong chemistry. When you're working with a director for the first time, how do you establish that chemistry? You don't always. <laughs> it's not always. Sometimes it's very things very work. I'm thinking about when I've worked with on multiple things with Jeff. Yeah, it was so well. Jeff, it was so great because we were, I just moved back to Austin. Because they can take shelter. And I just loved, I, it was, I thought it was, I knew Jeff a little bit through David, but not well. And then I went and got lunch with him and he was telling me about different projects he, went, he was looking at and told me about Take Shelter and sent me the script and I read it in one sitting. I just thought it was the best. I still think it's maybe the most like, readable in terms of just like like reading the book like i'm on the edge of my seat the whole time script's so good for not having a whole lot of dialogue it's so good He's just such a good writer you know his direct like stage directions are so good and then from that point just started talking a lot more and in doing so you eventually kind of yeah beyond and then became much better friends but um I don't expect to have any other relationship to ever be like with any director to ever be like the one I have with David because that's impossible because we've been best friends for the majority of our lives. Was that how did that affect your development initially? You know, when you're working on those first couple of films with him and you're kind of getting to grips with it, how does being so close kind of impact the way you're approaching it and what you're learning from it? I mean, I think it. I think that would be a better question for him, probably, because his he doesn't work with other he didn't work with any other composers besides me until several several films, and I would like to know what the difference was with him because he having just complete comfort level with me, I'm sure in some ways, like I have learned, like oh, I guess, oh, I thought all directors worked like this, 
like there are certain things I was like, only David does that. But I thought that was just a part of composing was he did this particular thing. Um, and I will, I think that's because probably just a comfort level of him being able to really follow his, and yeah, he was still figuring out, he was figuring out how to make movies, but he just had a vision and was very good at it from the, and he made student films, but still he's figuring out how to make movies. And I had no idea how to score a film. I think in terms of it just put me on a level where I would have felt like a fraud working with anyone else besides them for those first few movies because I didn't know what I was doing. And I would have felt so insecure about that. But the fact that I'm working with my oldest friend and who wants me to do this, and I that means a lot to me because I know how much this means to him and he's going to trust me with it. There's some pressure there, but it's also a level of like I'm not as intimidated as I might be otherwise. So I think it helped me. I, it was a such a long growth process that I'm still growing for sure um, in terms of like composing work and so at that beginning especially I look back at those scores I was like those aren't really film scores <laughs> it's like, I think we made some good music but it's it's a lot it's very much vignettes um, and it didn't even really but I was just getting, I still had the training wheels on so I think being able to grow at that rate but it worked it works for the films those films have a life that people they still live on. People still like them. So I'm not degrading or denigrating the music we made by any means. I just, they're not what I think of. It's not what I would do now. I would do something different. But that maybe it's not what David would do now. So it's very much, I feel like our uh, lack of experience in our, uh, those are very like hard on the sleeve movies. And I feel like I was a late, because of our relationship was allowed to kind of be that way without feeling a lot of the pressure to be anything else. You were saying as well that, you know, you're obviously growing a lot of that time when you're working those first couple of movies and you're still growing now. At what point does the learning curve start to level off a little bit and you start to feel like you have more of a grip on what composing is and how you go about it? Well, I think it started leveling off. The, the curve was certainly lessened by the time I was really learning orchestration and and was working with great people who were my friends. I mean, it was mostly pretty much all friends that I was working with until about 10 years ago. Like Craig Zobel with Great World of Sound, my friend Todd Rohall with Guadalupe Handshake, and then Jeff and David. Um, and just working on other things. I started working on documentaries and figuring out the difference there and then TV. And so, you know, at a certain point, your insecurities are no longer you can't really find a good way to justify a lot of them. So once I started seeing that I can feel confident, no matter who I was working with or what medium, just realizing I think the curve has certainly flattened in terms of my process of figuring this out. Um, but I try to do so many different kinds of things. I'm always so excited to do something different than what I've done before. I did a video game last year for the first time, and I don't have any interest in video games. I was an interesting game with an interesting story and they wanted something cinematic. And so learning something completely new and foreign to me. Yeah. Of course you're going to have to figure some new, new ways of thinking about things out. Um, and I like that. I suspect anyone who's trying to continue to make, to challenge themselves and make new things are always going to keep growing. But yeah, certainly the, the curve gets it's not going to be like it was when I was literally figuring it out. There might be a little bit of a comfort in that too, though. The chaos kind of settles a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the, what's the last lesson you learned that kind of profoundly impacted the way that you think about composing and what you do? I've been having kind of like an ongoing thing with 
having to always remind myself like work ethic. It's just like, I don't know if it's just like Protestant work ethic things ingrained this in us all here, but if I do, if, if, if what I composed was just a couple of pieces that I, uh, that took me like an hour, that can be okay. Like I'll keep working on it. I'll often just keep working on it. I think it's Adam just like, look, I can't be done. I just started this an hour ago and this is an important thing. And I'll have other like projects. That's not the case where we're making, where I'm making very much more melodically sophisticated music, including like Heaven's Gate. So I just had this happen recently. The last thing I worked on was Heaven's Gate, where it was really work like writing music all the time. And it was a lot of, for the most part, some pretty involved stuff. And then I'm working on this new show that I'm just Venice Mayans and C. And this first episode, I was still kind of in Heaven's Gate mode, even though we talked about this being like a pretty minimal score. And the director, Elgin James, was tempting with a lot of my older some of my older scores of some fairly minimal stuff and i did uh probably seven or eight scenes and i watched them all back to back and it was just like what am i doing this is too much music like this is i'm like we talked i got and i was thinking why did i do all this like we talked about this being minimal and i think i was just so back used to being in this heaven's gate mode where i thinking that it's got to be this you're sitting down and you're writing and writing and it takes a while and it's like i would was starting to judge and i think i really do think it's just the weird idea of time as being the arbiter of quality as time spent how hard it was um and i went back and i was like i hadn't turned into any of that music yet for mines and i went back and just kind of took out so much of the at least half the parts on some of it and even redid some of it just to be more mellow and I watched it all back again. I was like, yeah, this is better. I, mean, I, I could have done, I spent a week doing what could have been done in two days and that's okay. That doesn't, so I think it's just, that's a strange lesson to learn but it's one I always struggle with. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 